You, you got so, you got some notes? No, I just have a funny story that I think Chris will make Christine laugh. <laughs> Let's see if we can make make Christine laugh. It's really hard to do. I've edited out so many little Christine Snickers. <laughs> I know. I feel bad. I'm like I should not be laughing at that. No, it's okay. Hello and welcome to Z Prime on the Grid, a show where we discuss trends, issues, and topics pertinent to the energy industry. Today our topic is dialogue in the energy industry, how it builds progress, why it can be difficult to have meaningful dialogue, and how personalities enter the mix. We'll be talking later with Renewable Cities Operations Manager and Dialogue Convener Catherine Sheps, but first we'll open the discussion with our experts. I'm your host, Dylan Lockwood. I'm joined by Head of Research and Content, Christine Richards. How are you today, Christine? I'm good. How are you, Dylan? You know, I am doing pretty good. And we also have Research Analyst Aaron Hardick. How are you, Aaron? I'm good, Dylan. Excited to be podcasting again today. Yes, this is our second episode. We're going to get right into it today. Uh, So we're talking about dialogue in the energy industry. Dialogue is important to have mainly just because it helps bring ideas and people together to help overcome problems the same way it does in day-to-day life. So uh, what I, the way I'll start it off is, what do you think the state of dialogue in the energy industry is and why is it necessary? Well, Dylan, overall, I mean, I think the state of dialogue in the energy industry is that, you know, we're having some really strong conversations in, in important areas, um, things like digitalization, and moving towards a more distributed grid, uh, those conversations are really starting to move forward where um, a few, five years ago, you know, it really was a more difficult conversation to, to be having. Um, so I think there are definitely some, some good chats going on, but um, there are some bigger issues that, that are moving in that, that utilities are having a harder time uh, discussing. And I, I know we'll get into those a little bit later, but I uh, definitely think there are some opportunities for utilities to, to be able to increase their dialogue, not only within their own industry, but with you know, other key organizations and people uh, who are going to be involved in, in really creating the future of energy. So Aaron, while dialogue is an important thing from a sort of business perspective, the people having dialogue are, of, of course, people. Dialogue is a very natural thing that happens between people, and so that comes with its own you know, challenges and stigmas. So taking a step back for a minute, what do you see just uh, as the inherent personal issues with having difficult dialogue? Dylan, I think some of, you know, the difficulties that come with having good dialogue is, one, you never know the willingness of the two parties participating in the dialogue. You never know, you know, their willingness to compromise. I think that is... um, one very important aspect of of good dialogue is how willing are you to actually listen to what um, the other person is saying um, and then respond to it. Christine and I actually kind of talked about this earlier this week when I was in Denver is um, are, are you listening to understand what the other person is saying or are you listening just to respond so I think good dialogue comes when people listen to understand as opposed to listen just to respond. And I just add to that that, you know, I mean, change is, change is always difficult. Um, it's a difficult conversation for, for people to have. And like Aaron said, I mean, you, you have different parties who are starting to come together uh, and, and having to no- negotiate and having to potentially make compromises and to really understand what the other, the other party's thinking, you know, what are their motivations, what are their incentives. Uh, I mean, that can be a very difficult thing to do. And, and like you said, Dylan, uh, it all comes back to people, right? Um, even though we're talking more broadly about the industry, organizations, you know, different parties that come together, Really, all those groups are, they're made up of people and, and people have challenging conversations every day and, you know, conversations that they aren't comfortable in. Um, so that, that tends to come across when you start moving into some of these larger issues and um, organizations really having to work together. And another aspect I think that kind of can come into that isn't just, you know, 
wariness of another party, but also maybe some sort of pride or insecurity on the part of, of, of yourself. You know, sometimes you will have to talk with a loved one or a friend about some of your own shortcomings that either they're upset about or that you want to change about yourself. And those can be difficult conversations to have. Or if you're at a job and you feel like you're being treated unfairly or you want to raise or something like that, those can be difficult because you have to be able to deal with someone that you know might be averse to, to your suggestions. So it's not just wariness of another party. I feel like it's part of having difficult dialogue is being able to be introspective and self-aware when having this dialogue. And that can be difficult for people. Yeah, Dylan, I think you're right. Christine actually posted on LinkedIn earlier this week this um, blog post around failure and people's non-willingness to talk about failure And I think that comes into play when we talk about difficult conversations, especially like you just mentioned, Dylan, if you're at a job and you want to raise, there's that aspect of knowing that you may not get a raise when you ask for a raise. So there's that failure aspect that people are kind of scared of that may prevent that conversation from happening in the first place. So I I just think that is also a really important important aspect of of difficult dialogue is how do I approach the situation knowing that I may not get what I want and how am I going to deal with that failure or that rejection and I think it's not just um yeah I mean that individual level uh you mentioned that blog post Aaron and and I have a couple couple data points from that we're looking at it from the organizational standpoint of looking at at failure as part of innovation. You know, I surveyed the audience at our at our ETS 17 event just around what they saw as being important in innovation and and should utilities be innovating. And you know, one question I asked was utilities should they be involved in driving innovation within energy? And 95% of the people who were at the event in this session said yes. And then I asked, well, is it okay for utilities to fail in order to innovate? And 89% of them said, yeah. But then I asked, you know, asked people how much they agreed with this statement. One of my organization's primary objectives is the avoidance of failure. And 54% of them said yes. So the breakdown within the audience, I mean, there were definitely a lot of utilities there. And what I drew from that is utilities should be involved in driving innovation and they're going to have to fail, but yet, most organizations are really trying to avoid failure. So, you know, you're really setting yourself up to have difficult conversations and, and presenting ideas saying, hey, this may not, you know, this may not work. Um, if it does work, you know, we'll definitely have some uh, potentially some significant innovation going on. But if it doesn't work, then, you know, we're pretty much failing in one of our key things that um, we're looking to do, which is is to not fail within our organization. So I think just some of that fear of of change and failure within an organization uh, can can make it difficult to have some of these conversations as well. Uh, would you say, Christine, that sometimes the people that are having the dialogue are not necessarily the same people who are ultimately making the big decisions, or that the people having the dialogue have someone behind their shoulder just kind of shaking their head at every at every attempt at collaboration? Well, I think it's just that that organizational structure that gets set up. Uh, a lot of times we find that beyond just utilities, within you know organizations in general, um, having that executive level support is, is really critical for driving a lot of these uh, relatively untested initiatives and in, in getting them to move forward. So thinking back to things like AMI meters several years ago, where we asked, okay, well, what's the biggest way that you're going to be able to drive this this forward? And a lot of times people said, hey, you know, executive support. And a lot of times if people don't get that support at that high enough level, yeah, I mean, it's that thing that, you know, someone may have a great idea within an organization, but they, they may not be senior enough to really make that happen. There would be so many different hurdles for them to get over uh, to really make it happen um, that you need to have that executive support in place. I mean, I feel like there's... In a lot of cases, it's not people really looking over your shoulder saying, hey, what are you doing? That's a really bad idea. Uh, it's just, it's some of these um, 
like this organizational inertia uh, that that kind of keeps people, you know, where they are and, and, and really not necessarily wanting to drive forward with change. Okay, so just keeping it on a personal level for a minute, uh, Aaron, we'll start with you. What's a kind of difficult conversation you've had to have and how did you kind of overcome the inertia? Well, it's not one particular conversation that I had to have, but I do want to say when we decided that this was going to be our topic for this podcast and Christine sent over the abstract um, for this episode, she'd mentioned, you know, the birds and the bees and the breakup talk. And those were honestly the first two um, conversations that came to mind when I started thinking about personal conversations that are hard to have. But it's a family podcast, Aaron. <laughs> so anybody who really knows me or my family would probably tell you or you'll know that we enjoy arguing or good conversation. So when I was younger, my siblings and I, whenever we would be arguing about something, uh, my dad's solution to the problem was actually to sit us down in two separate chairs and each person had two minutes to state their side of the argument and then you got two minutes to essentially reply to that person's argument. So it would be two minutes for child one, and then child number two got two minutes to think about their argument, and then two minutes to state their argument. And essentially he had like created this mock trial-esque way of us solving our problems. And looking back, it just cracks me up because we were like seven and nine years old doing this arguing about why my little sister got her own bedroom when she was nine and I didn't when I was nine but just the thought of my dad thinking this is an appropriate way to teach my kids how to come to a compromise this young makes me laugh because he essentially just taught us how to argue pretty effectively from from a young age. I we we need to get your dad on this podcast sometime. I feel like you have all these good good dad stories. Um and and he'd probably be a pretty interesting guy to talk to. He makes me laugh, that's for sure. He definitely is never afraid to tell a dad joke. We actually went we went hiking this past weekend in Denver. And my sister said to me, she goes, we just hiked seven miles and listened to seven miles of dad jokes, (laughs) which was very true. I I was thinking as you were preparing for this, I was trying to think of, um, you know, difficult conversations that 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 I've had to have. And uh, I think within my family, like none of us really talked a whole lot to one another. Like we generally just, I think, made fun of one another and and got along for the the most part. Um, I think the most difficult conversations I've had uh, revolve a lot around around work. Um, and I, I thought back to this one time where uh, I was leaving one of my my previous organizations, and I had to go tell my boss that I was leaving. And I knew my boss wouldn't take it very well, but uh, I had gone into the office, you know, just to talk to him about it a little bit more. And I kept, you know, coming into his office and and he would have someone else in there. And I, I must have looked really flustered and I'd walk away and I'd, I'd come back and and I'd say, oh, do you have time now? And, and he said, no, I don't have time now. And, you know, then I, I, I'd come back. And like the third time I came back, he said, you're, you're going to quit, aren't you? <laughs> and, and I was just like, ah, you know, I was just, I, I was so ready, you know, to, to try to do it. I had built up all the courage. Um, and he, he figured it out without me even having to say it. Um, cause it was definitely such a stressful thing to have. So I, I think that, you know, like we've been talking about that, that personal aspect and, and, and what you see on a personal level as being difficult to have, you know, can get carried out. Uh, into some of these broader, you know, more organizational and, and industry changes that we're talking about. All right. Way to put it back on the rails, Christine. <laughs> what about you, Dylan? What's some, What's been a difficult conversation for you to have? You know, I, uh, I host local trivia in my hometown uh, pretty much once every other week. And 
pretty much every time there's someone who comes up and argues with about uh, about scoring issues or about you know whether an answer is technically right or not what we're accepting it's uh you know because i mean because there's you know prizes on the line and pride on the line people get really really upset about that and so i guess that's more of a customer service thing but you still have to be able to make these tough calls and have these have these conversations and sometimes you know you have to be able to admit when you messed up and cha- change their scoring appropriately I guess, I guess that's the one i deal with on a fairly regular basis but personally i don't do well with confrontations so i have to man up to do it i feel like we're gonna have to get some trivia questions on here for you dylan since you are the trivia master apparently yeah yep yep that's getting cut, but yes. Oh, oh. <laughs> I'm going to bring a trivia question on for every other pod, every podcast we do from now on and ask you. Okay. It. I like that, Christine. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So these are all good examples of how in our own lives it can be tough to have difficult conversations but how dialogue can kind of help people come to understandings. So let's bring it back to energy for a bit. Uh, what do you see, Christine, as some of the toughest conversations to have in energy, whether they're actively happening or not? Well, Dylan, I, I think like we talked about earlier, that failure piece uh, is, is definitely a difficult conversation to have. Uh, utilities are so focused on, on delivering reliable energy that when you know the power goes out that's that's not a good thing for them um and it's something that uh they they definitely are exposed a lot um both within their organization as well as outside of their organization with the the general public but i think that makes it difficult to talk about innovation for some utilities and and that yeah some failures might might happen along the way as as they innovate uh, a couple other ones that really come to mind uh, are are around cybersecurity. Uh, people, you know, talk about how that's such a critical topic as the grid becomes more distributed, as it becomes, you know, more digitalized. Uh, there, there are going to be some greater exposures that utility companies face, and and people want to talk about it, but but it's hard to talk about because when you start talking about cybersecurity and the details of it. Uh, you you definitely start to to expose your vulnerabilities and, and open yourself up to even more you know potential attacks. So there there's definitely some um, balance with having that conversation around cybersecurity, but not giving giving too much away. And I have I have a couple other ones here, but I wanted to hear from Erin Hardick first, just to make sure I don't take all of hers uh, as to as to what she sees being some of the difficult conversations. So. My perspective uh, on this question is a little different from Christine's because I can't really make a comparison to how the industry was addressing problems, you know, five years ago or 10 years ago, because I'm still new to the industry myself. I think for the past year that I've really been deeply involved in, in the industry, some difficult topics are things like subsidies for renewables. How do you appropriately price contributions renewables have to the grid? And then, you know, there's always conversations around gas prices, carbon policy, things like that. Another interesting one is the workforce. How do things like digitalization, DERs, how do they affect the workforce? A lot of the mobile workforce is aging and it's going to be replaced by, you know, younger generations that are have different skill sets than previous generations. So how do utilities start to harness those new skill sets? Just just things like that. You definitely see that uh, around around the workforce. I think people people will talk about the workforce, but they'll talk about it at a very high level. Oh, aging workforce or people are going to be retiring. And it's hard to get sometimes into that that nitty-gritty uh, of the conversation and how things are really going to change as a younger workforce uh, joins the the industry. And it's it's been interesting to see that happen over the past several years uh, just cuz I'm 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 older than Aaron and have been in the industry for a while now. 
And uh, I think that it's been cool to see some of the innovation really start to move forward with utilities as younger workers have come in and, and started to demand some of these things. You know, why, why are we still doing it this way? You know, and, and, and those, those younger workers also having a lot of passion around things like, like renewable energy. Just to add a, a couple other conversations I think are difficult. Uh, one is just, I think we talked about it a little bit in our last podcast around utilities and their roles in smart cities. Uh, we've seen that, you know, that's just an area where utilities haven't had to typically work with with other organizations around the, the smart city space, you know, dealing more with, with cities on that, that topic, um, transportation authorities. You know, those are definitely some some difficult conversations to have. And another one is just some of the some of the disconnect between utilities and, and their customers. You know, utilities and customers have had a very long standing relationship of, you know, you pay a bill as a customer and you get to plug in uh, into your outlets and and you get power. And now there's a lot more complexity with what's happening in energy. So how do utilities communicate that with their customers? Uh, how do they help them understand, um, you know, why it may be difficult to integrate renewables, or you know, what what customers can can really do to help uh, conserve energy and and maybe change the way they approach energy? Those are just conversations that really haven't happened on any significant level until the past really two to three years, you're, you're really seeing those conversations start to happen. Yeah, Christine, you bring up a good point that uh, the conversations aren't all just interagency. It's not simply utilities sitting down at a conference somewhere and hammering out issues. There is also that you know, customer-facing aspect and having difficult internal conversations as well. So in this sense, dialogue is a means to an end in all aspects of the business. So one thing I like to do that my friends always make fun of me for is I'll just casually ask people when I when we're out um, who their utility is <laughs> and ask them how they like them. And uh, I'll be, my friends are, you know, annoyed by that because they are tired of me wanting to talk about energy all the time. But I really do get, you know, a wide variety of responses. And that's primarily from me being in Dallas, Austin, and Houston, um, when I'm in my Uber, I'll ask them, oh, who, by the way, who's your utility and, and how do you feel towards them? And, you know, some people have really positive responses, but they're, I would say 50% have negative responses as well. So it's just very apparent that um, customer engagement is still, you know, a, it's a conversation that utilities need to have and trying to understand what their customers want how can they effectively communicate with their customers and provide them with the services um, to the expectations that customers have these days which are pretty high expectations just given the digitalization of so many industries and the convenience of that so many industries now provide um, it's starting to move into energy delivery so customer expectations are growing and utilities are figuring out how do we keep our customers happy while their expectations are growing and I think too um, you know if utilities aren't willing to have those conversations with customers there, there are other there are other organizations and businesses who are saying, hey, we'll have those conversations with customers. So things about, oh, if you have interest in renewables, you know, what what can you do? You know, if you want a smart thermostat, oh, you know, hey, we're willing to provide that to you. Uh, so, I mean, I think that there are a lot of conversations that need to happen in energy. And if utilities aren't willing to do them, there, there are definitely other groups who are, who are going to take advantage of that. All right. Well, that was a good discussion on how dialogue in the energy industry can be difficult from a business level and also a personal level. Uh, when we come back, we'll be talking to Catherine Sheps from Renewable Cities. Don't go anywhere. There's more Z Prime on the grid coming up.
Welcome back to Z Prime on the Grid. Today on the show, we have Catherine Sheps. She is the operations manager and dialogue convener at Renewable Cities in Vancouver, British Columbia. How are you today, Catherine? Hi, I'm great. Thanks. Oh, absolutely. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what it is you do and where you do it? Sure. So um, you mentioned that I'm the operations manager and dialogue convener at Renewable Cities, um, which is a program of the Simon Fraser University Center for Dialogue, and that's here in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. One of the things I do as a dialogue convener um, is that I help kind of program and design and then also bring people together to have what we would call as effective conversations as possible towards building solutions around issues um, related to the energy transition. Renewable Cities as an organization um, exists to support cities in the transition to uh, 100% renewable energy and energy efficiency. So we try to bring people together to help discuss the challenges and opportunities um, that come along with the energy transition to a more renewable, more distributed, and more efficient electrical grid in the future. Um, But then not just about electricity as well. We also talk about um, energy efficiency. We talk about heating and cooling in cities, um, so building efficiency. And we also talk a lot about transportation. So in your experience as a dialogue convener, what makes for good dialogue? And what makes for difficult dialogue? A really good question. Well... Um, in a lot of ways, you know, for as many reasons as any conversation can be difficult, dialogues can be difficult. Um, you know, there's it's a complex, especially when you're talking about energy, we're talking about complex systems. And people within those systems often are kind of really, really knowledgeable about their specific area, but they are not always understanding the impacts that they're knowledge has or doesn't have or how well that is communicated outside of their, I would say, kind of silo, I guess, of, of work. So we all know who we kind of talk to and deal with on a daily basis, but it's sometimes harder to, you know, imagine how others are using and interpreting the same information or how others see the actions that our groups are taking in terms of, you know, what that means for, for their, their work. Um, so a dialogue is a real chance to, to kind of bring together people together um, in, in understanding and listening to each other and hopefully learning enough to build some solutions and some actions that happen outside of the perhaps the room of the dialogue or the space of the dialogue. So there's a lot of things that make conversations hard. Um, there's also a lot of things that can make conversations easier. Is about when people are willing to come together and kind of focus on solutions. So then how do you go about making dialogue uh, productive rather than, you know, platitudinous? Or how do you increase the chance of there being some type of follow-up after the discussion? So some of what makes an actual dialogue or the conversation that takes place during a dialogue really productive and useful. Um, A lot of that has to do with the work that happens behind the scenes. So that's a lot of the work that I I wind up doing and my team winds up doing. Um, So there's actually a lot of kind of research and understanding that has to go into holding space for a productive dialogue. Um, Some of that research is, you know, the basic research. Do we understand as facilitators or conveners of the dialogue do we understand the technical material in question? You know, if we're talking about elec- um, electricity and the electrical grid or, or you know, increasing the num- amount of renewables on the grid or because we work in cities, um, dealing with cities that, uh, problems that cities are facing, do we understand those technically? That's really important. Um, and then beyond that is also what we would call... Um, scoping. So who are the people who are coming together at the table? And are those the people who can best address the questions? And then finally, I would talk about um, the process design. So that's kind of our internal lingo for what are we actually doing when we all get together? Are we talking about a specific issue? And how are we approaching that as a group? And so some of that is making sure that all the participants are starting from a, a 
equal understanding of some basic uh, facts, I would say. But it's also about how do we get a group, or not get, I guess is not the right word, but how can we help facilitate moving a group from a starting place, which may be incomplete understanding or disagreement, to a place where they can see potential collaboration. And that's a lot of, there's a lot of research about that, how to get groups to think differently, how to change systems, but it's also a matter of kind of an art of it in a way, where you think about what questions and outcomes would be most helpful and, and kind of work through ways to help a group to move there. Catherine, I'm, I mean, that's really very interesting points around um, the preparation you know, and understanding the process. Your comments made me think of a question around sort of that endpoint, right? The the goal of of what people want to get out of of this dialogue, and it seems like, you know, that that end goal could could ultimately change. I mean, as people are having conversations, you know, new things might come to light, and and that may, I, I would imagine, change the direction of of the conversation and where it's going. So. As you build these sorts of conversations, I mean, how much do you really need to know about that that endpoint and and where you want to go? And and does that do you find that that really shifts, you know, as as the conversation goes on? Yeah, um, I guess that they totally can shift, and sometimes surprisingly so. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, I I don't remember which one of you. I think it was maybe you, Christine, that talked about um, um, listening to understand instead of listening to to reply. And that's a really big change. That's an internal change in people. And that can really lead to some pretty big external changes when you're talking about big institutions sitting down to each, with each other, you know, like a city and a utility, talking about what they each need and listening to understand that can, that can really lead to a lot of changes. But I guess one of the ways that we kind of shift that is by looking for what kind of basic level outcomes we can expect, like better understanding or sharing resources or examining where the current challenges are. And then hoping and asking participants to keep in mind some general guiding questions. I guess that's where we kind of look at an end state is, can we answer some basic questions? Not can we arrive at a predetermined solution, but together through a dialogue process, can we answer some questions about who do we need to have involved in developing the solution? Or can we start looking at where the solution would lie and how can we all take some part of responsibility? Or what resources do we, further resources or information do we need to find a solution? Because sometimes that's, that can be the case too. So um, hoping that the outcome process kind of answers a question rather than getting to a definitive statement is a good way of leaving some space there. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, we're always talking about these visions, you know, within energy of, oh, you know, things are going to be increasingly distributed or uh, they're, they're going to be, they're going to be more renewables or it's going to be more digitalized. So, but there's that thing of, okay, well, what does that actually look like? You know, and how, how do we kind of move there if we don't fully know what it is um, and, and, and really get people on board with those concepts? So... Definitely makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. And, you know, part of the reason why, especially around the future of energy, for instance, it's difficult is because there are so many factors that could determine that future. And unraveling that complexity and building a vision of what the future might look like will really vary from a whole bunch of different organizational perspectives and kind of ownership perspectives. I mean, my perspective as, you know, a citizen of a particular city or country might be different than another's or, you know, people who are dealing with creating policy or if I owned or had to operate a complex electrical grid, um, I would have really different concerns. Um, And part of why dialogue is useful is that we are not asking people to change other people. We're asking people to listen and see what parts they're able to bring forward. So, you know, everybody, no matter what perspective you're coming from, or no matter what kind of stake you might hold in deciding an energy future, 
if we can all agree on some basic ground rules, we could probably talk about what we are able to bring forward. Hopefully a good dialogue or a productive dialogue process would lead to some under, better understanding of the challenges or the complexity and then some internal kind of reflection about what you as an individual in an organization or as an individual working on this challenge can do to help shift it forward. So Catherine, What positive dialogue trends are going on right now in the energy industry, and what ones are you not seeing that you wish were taking place? That's a really good question. Um, So one of the things that I see as being really productive right now is um, maybe a little outside the energy industry um, as a whole, but um, I'm my organization is quite active since we work on energy in cities in in the movement that's really taking off across North America, especially lately, um, with the decision from the U.S. government to pull out of the Paris Climate Accords of cities taking really significant action on climate change, including moving to 100% renewable energy. And one of the things that's really positive about that is it makes for a really, we've been able to develop a really rich and positive, um, productive dialogue space for the cities that are interested in understanding this transition and how what roles they can play in helping to push the transition forward. I'm really heartened to see cities that are really interested in engaging with electrical utilities and electrical generation in a way that was kind of not really thought of a few years ago. Um, and that I see a lot of times that cities are really eager to learn from each other and from anybody really, who has good information to share about how cities can reduce emissions from um, their energy sources, how they can build um, climate-resistant and resilient cities, and how um, and how, what amount their, their energy supply or how they use or produce energy in their city contributes to that, as well as how they can make their cities really more inclusive for all residents and make the energy transition inclusive so that it's not it's for all citizens to share in the benefits. So that's a space that I see is really rich and productive right now. As a flip side of that, one thing I would say is an opportunity for the larger energy industry as a whole is to really engage with that movement. So far, um, many municipal utilities are engaged with the 100% renewable energy movement and, you know, are involved in talking about, well, how is this tricky or how is that hard or where, how slowly or quickly can we move or how can we build more renewable capacity onto cities' grids. But um, there's an opportunity definitely for utilities, especially kind of larger utilities, to really engage um, in those dialogues. And I think that would be to the benefit of not only to the utilities benefit, but also to the city's benefit. Um, because often what we find when we're convening dialogues is we often try to invite players from all sides in this conversation to join us at the table, but it can be quite hard to identify who at a utility would be most appropriate to talk and share, especially when you're talking about really large um, utilities. And additionally, um, it also can be quite challenging for cities then to understand whether the demands or commitments that they're making are reasonable within the policy and regulatory frameworks that they're in, they find themselves in. So having utilities involved at the conversation in the conversation would really benefit cities and others who are pushing utilities because they need to understand the trade-offs that they're asking utilities to make better as well. Well, how do you think they can overcome that sort of apprehension if they're even hesitant to come to the table at all? Yeah, and I don't want to say that they're necessarily hesitant to come to the table. I think part of it is the increasing number of cities that are interested in making these commitments will kind of start to make these this conversation one that utilities will not be able to ignore um, because, you know, it's not just cities that are making or trying to transition to 100% renewable energy. You've also got a big movement of college campuses, of corporate customers, and and those groups are starting to talk to each other more and more and kind of 
find ways to to build coalitions um, to approach utilities or to push utilities to adopt more renewables onto the grid. I think in a certain sense, you know, the success of the movement will help push utilities as well. But um, it, it's, it's a process, all of it. So um, we hope that, you know, some of the, of the guidelines that we use in setting these dialogues up and the rules of engagement, I guess, that we kind of hold really dear when we are inviting people to come together in dialogue. Um, we hope that over time, you know, the track record kind of speaks for itself, I guess, that, um, that we can help people understand that they're, that they're not coming to be attacked or to debate either, that we are, we, are coming, we are asking them to come to the table to share their knowledge and perspectives because they're very valuable. Um, and then hopefully, you know, hopefully that's a process that, that starts to work. And then I firmly believe that once a few, you know, once we see some successes, that will start to open up um, more opportunities. You make a lot of great points, Catherine, around the, the role of, of, you know, not just cities, uh, but large facilities such as universities, uh, even large commercial and industrial customers, and you know even even residential customers and, and concerned citizens that that are that are coming together. Uh, we find even though we cover, you know, we deem the utility industry, those those voices have increasingly become a part of the conversation, and a lot of our research has has started to go in that direction because of the the power and influence that those groups, I think, are ultimately going to have. Thinking about the utilities and and how they fit into the conversation, it makes me think back to your earlier comment about, you know, complex systems and how, you know, this is a pretty complicated uh, effort that's that's going on. And what I've seen with a lot of utilities is that they, you know, that they, they see what they're doing. You know, they're working on energy efficiency. A lot of them have those efforts around renewables. Uh, but it's kind of within their their silo and and what they what they know and what they've always done. So to start to branch out beyond that is just is this a little bit different. And even though they're actually doing things that would contribute to some of the things that that you you've been talking about with having you know greater renewables, more distributed grids, it it seems sometimes like there's just a little bit of a you know lack of connection of of drawing the you know the commonalities between those between those efforts. Absolutely, and. I uh, absolutely recognize that utilities are moving in utility scale. Solar and mm-hmm. wind is like transforming a lot of, you know, the North American grid. And when you look at hydro in Canada, uh, hydroelectric power, pardon me, in Canada and solar and uh, utility scale, solar and wind kind of more throughout the United States, you know, you're starting to see a lot of shifting. There's just always, you know, there's always more places to better understand how we can work together and I think to me what often is useful is to keep in mind is that it can seem like pressure from a city or a, an outside group to do a certain thing for us or, you know, for our benefit, but oftentimes what we are losing sight of. And I think that sometimes what can be seen by some groups as consumer pressure or advocate pressure to do better on increasing renewables or understand committing to better understanding of, of um, an outside group's kind of request for engagement. But to keep in mind in the backdrop of all of this is that we have a really big, complex challenge that's kind of overarching all of these energy conversations, which is how do we respond to climate change and keep our planet habitable? And so, you know, there is an overarching urgency feeling to to some of these conversations that also adds to the complexity of specific issues and different kind of advocate groups in inside um, the utility or energy industry and outside. Yeah, Catherine, I, I think, you know, you make a good point. One thing that comes to mind for me, at least, is some communities, they say, oh, we see this city doing you know, 100% renewable this way, why can't, you know, our city do it that way as well? I think there's this misconception that there's kind of a a one-size-fits-all solution to 
approaching 100% renewable when that's not necessarily true. And sometimes, you know, the community or certain advocacy groups, they don't understand the complexities of the grid and how, you know, different cities have different problems they have to solve in in, in terms of um, getting to a 100%, 100% renewable generation. So how do you, you know, question is, how do you go about educating the community on these complexities when you can't really speak to them in a technical level because that's that's not going to resonate? How do you help them understand that just because City X is doing this this way, it's not necessarily the right way for us to do it? So how do we try? We, we try and, and ha- advocate that cities also look at, at their own um, specific environments, whether that's the resource environment around them, and understand what levers they do have at their disposal. So one of the things that we do, uh, do try to do when we're talking to cities about the complexity of this transition is try to also um, get to a point of understanding that, that there is there really isn't a one-size-fits-all solution, and different cities will have different resources they're able to bring to bear in, in taking climate action, and they'll have different liabilities and vulnerabilities as well. And so understanding that building a solution for one city has to be something undertaken, kind of busting down silos, if you will, within that city, as well as between the city and other kind of outside organizations, and to understand also how they can best kind of position themselves for success given the political or regulatory and utility environments they're in. So there are a number of different pathways that may be available to cities depending on, you know, what are the subsidies available for renewable energy in your state or what pathways or interests are available in your state for or, or region for um, other policies for dealing with utility regulation, as well as for looking at what else is possible within the policy framework existing in a particular region. Yeah, just to add on to to what Catherine said, there are really some great opportunities here for utilities to, you know, help their communities understand uh, some of the complexities that they they face, and and really take some opportunity to educate key stakeholders about, you know, how the electrical grid has traditionally worked, um, you know, if we're going to change how we approach uh, renewable energy in a more distributed grid, you know, here are some of the things that we as as utilities, you know, we have to work within um, and, and really provide some of that education. I think that utilities for a long time, I mean, they've, they've honestly done such a good job at, at delivering electricity and, and making it so reliable that people just they, they honestly just don't think about it that much because they just plug in and pretty much most of the time it's you're going to get electricity. So uh, I think that there's a real opportunity for there for, for utilities to step up and, and, and really start talking about, you know, some of the things that they're working through as well. Absolutely. And there are groups that have created um, kind of reports or um methods for which like kind of almost processes for cities to take on and if they're interested in in moving to 100% renewable energies then I'm thinking of there's a German group that um, of Germans have really integrated a lot of renewables comparatively to in North America in a lot of cases Um, there's a German group that has written a document about um, uh, calling the the building blocks to building a, a renewable energy city. So those build, that building blocks document um, really talks about a, a comprehensive and holistic resource assessment in terms of what is your capacity to make um, changes on a whole host of of levels. Um, that's beyond just you know dealing just with the electrical utility because you know, a lot of the changes that a city can make can also be really impactful, don't have to involve a utility necessarily. Um, They can also be things that that the city does within, you know, building codes and land use planning and transportation that that can really um, 
must have a big impact on on the efficiency of the city, energy efficiency or efficiency of the city in a lot of ways in responding to some of these challenges. So it's not just you know negotiating with utilities, um, and we do our best to stress that that's only one part of it, although obviously a really important part. Um, and you know as much help as utility or the energy industry can help and lend to its major customers, cities or large institutions, and helping make those kinds of changes um, useful and easy and understandable is good too. I agree. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Catherine. We really appreciate having you on. How can people find out more about you uh, and Renewable Cities and the Simon Fraser University Center for Dialogue? Thanks for having me on. So you can find um, Renewable Cities on the web at www.renewablecities.ca and on Twitter at at Renewable Cities. You can find the Center for Dialogue at Simon Fraser University online at www.ffu.ca slash dialogue. And you can find me on Twitter at KMSHEPS. That's K-M-S-H-E-P-S. All right. Well, thank you for coming on, Catherine. Uh, It was a great conversation. Great. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. That'll do it for us today at Z Prime on the Grid. Uh, I'd like to thank my co-host, Christine Richards. Thanks, Dylan. And Aaron Hardick. Thank you, Dylan. You know what? You are both very welcome. You can find out more about us at zprime.com. You can find our research at etsinsights.com. If you want to read the blog post that Christine talked about earlier, you can find it on her LinkedIn, H. Christine Richards. We're all, we're all on social media under our names. Uh, you can find the Z Prime Twitter at Z Prime Research, and we have personals at dy Lockwood, at H. Christine, and at Aaron Hardick. My name is Dylan. Thank you very much. Have a nice week. You can find the Center for Dialogue at Simon Fraser University online at www.ffu.ca slash dialogue. Wait a minute. www. No one, no one actually types that in anymore, do they? Do you want me to redo it without that? Oh, no, no. I was just, I'm just making a joke. <laughs> Friendly podcast yes, banter. And-